This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. For the second episode in our series exploring fresh starts in our horticultural and gardening world this week, I welcome back to the program Doug Tallamy. Doug is a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he has taught for more than 32 years. He's a member of the Center for Humans and Nature, a group of dedicated people working to expand our natural and civic imaginations. Chief among Doug's research goals is to better understand the many ways insects interact with plants and how such interactions determine the diversity of animal communities, including ours. His well-loved books include Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Gardens, and most recently, Nature's Best Hope, wherein he proposes the magnificent idea of a homegrown national park sown with the participation of every one of our gardens. I spoke with Doug this past summer, and the first question I posed to him was why. After all these years at this work, why another book? Why this appeal to individual homeowners and their yards and gardens? There's still millions who who have not not actually heard the message that humans are part of nature, that we cannot continue to exist without it. We seem to have this perpetual war against it. And as as uh, Rachel Carson said, any war against nature is a war against ourselves. So um, none of those things are acceptable, and we need to spread this message farther and wider, and get everybody on board. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. This urgency is, uh, and anxiety and grief is very deeply felt by many of us who um, are in this with you. I think that you know so much of your your first book, and certainly in the nature's best hope, there is hope in the title, and there is hope in somewhere as a seed in our anxiety. I think. And a lot of that comes, I think, for me at any rate, from my personal love and attachment and relationship and experience with the nature in my garden every day and the nature in the larger world outside of my garden every day. Will you briefly remind listeners, um, about your own sort of personal earliest influences? Like what people and places and and plants pulled you toward these interests because you have become a leading voice in this um, ecological approach to how we engage with our yards. But it comes from a place of really deeply felt personal love as well, not just professional knowledge. Yeah, that that's very true. And and I have to say, I can't take any credit for that. I was born with that, yeah. <laughs> that love of nature. Uh, and I can I can say that with confidence because I have a brother and a sister. We were raised in the same house at the same place. We had our same experiences with nature, but they don't feel it the way I do, and and it's just the way they are. So there it was. The seed was there, and I've always, uh, throughout my life, I have pursued things that gave me pleasure, and that was always something from the natural world. That brought me to the world of entomology, a career in entomology at the University of Delaware. Uh, but I really was studying uh, behavior um, for the first, well, first two-thirds of my career anyway. Insects do lots of, of very interesting things, and I was documenting them, and, and it was all great. 
But none of it actually mattered. None of it, none of it made a difference. It wasn't until the year 2000 when uh, my wife and I, Cindy, moved into our new house in Oxford, Pennsylvania. It was on a 10-acre lot, one of these farms that were broken up, and it had been mowed for hay for who knows how long. That area of, of Pennsylvania has been in agriculture for 300 years, so uh, the land was, was beat to death, and there was very little there. Uh, so our goal was to uh, restore it. Well, there was there were a number of years in between when it was taken out of mowing and when we actually moved in. And of course, uh, it was thoroughly invaded with non-native plants. So step one was to get the invasives under control. Uh, and that took that took several years. But early on, just walking around the property, um, I'm always looking for insects. That's what entomologists do. And you look for insects by looking for uh, little little feeding holes on leaves. Turn the leaf over, and there's there's the culprit. So one day I was doing that, and I noticed there was uh, there was you know reasonably good feeding feeding uh, scars on the native plants that we had, the black cherry and and some of our small oaks, but we had an awful lot of autumn olive and multiflora rose and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and all the other bases that are so common there, no feeding damage at all on those. And I said, well, gee. Um, this is not surprising. I mean, in graduate school back in in uh, back in the 70s, we learned about uh, host plant specialization, insects that eat plants. Um, most of them are highly specialized on particular plant lineages. And of course, if we bring a plant over from Asia, our insects aren't going to be able to eat it. Now, that's a generalization, but that's uh, that's pretty close to the way it is. So I wasn't, you know, this was not news. I wasn't surprised. But I said, this will make a good research project for an undergraduate. They can compare insect use of native and non-native plants. Well, it turns out that nobody else was looking at that. And that project uh, started where I am today. I, I realized this is a, a, a huge problem. I didn't realize how pervasive these non-native plants were as invasive species and also the plants that we use as ornaments in our yard. You know, I measured it around uh, in, in southeast uh, Pennsylvania and northeast Maryland and Delaware. Um, it's, what, 82% non-native plants in our landscapes. So um, that led me to, to be thinking about food webs. If these plants are, are capturing the energy from the sun and then passing it on to other living things, but we bring in plants from Asia that don't pass it on. You usually pass it on through insects. Insects eat the plants and then the birds eat the insects. Then we have we have dead landscapes. We have failed food webs. And if you have that almost everywhere, this is a huge problem. So, you know, that one walk through, through my yard uh, got me to realize that this is an issue not just where I live. It's an issue across the U.S. And I'm uh, pretty, pretty sure it's a serious issue across the globe. So... The good news is it's easily reversed, and that's exactly what we've done at, at our yard. We have taken out the, the non-natives. We put in native plants. You know, this is 10 acres. We've regenerated the, the landscape to the point where we now have forest birds nesting. Uh, at home. And we've done it. You know, I say we, but really it's, it's my wife did most of the work. Um, so it is a lot of work. There's no doubt about it, but it's not impossible. And when you put the plants that support our food webs back, they rebuild themselves. 
It, it's remarkable, actually. And that enormous joy of discovery and putting in one plant that calls in a new local butterfly or bee or even a wasp or a bird, there's something that really like clicks alive in you when this happens in your garden. You have sort of skin in the game all of a sudden in a way that you never have before you saw this relationship. Is that your experience? Because that's certainly mine. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, and it, and it's so much fun. I've, yeah. I've made a goal of, of counting all the moth species that yeah. I actually that I photograph at my house. If I don't photograph it, it doesn't count. <laughs> and I'm up to what am I? Nine nine hundred and sixty-four species. Well done, you. That's good. That's and really every good. Every time I go out to do it, I I find new ones. So it, that's welcoming new members to my family. They're now part yeah. of the family. There are things that I've I've targeted, like the Abbott Sphinx moth. It it eats uh, native grapes. It ought to be at our house, um, but you know, we've been there. This is our 20th year. Never found it. Well, this year I did find it. So it was great. Okay. It's finally there. Oh, that's good. And it's also another signal that this does work. Yeah. That should have been at our house. I didn't know why I hadn't found it. And I just hadn't found it. It it, it was there. Yeah. Uh, It says, yeah, this really does work. So, yeah. So, okay. You know, you've, you've been at this work, like very focused for, 15 years now, 20 years now. And you, as you said, you, you moved into your uh, new land. You started tending your current piece of land 20 years ago. Here we are 2020. You and I are, you know, we're both avid gardeners. We love plants. We clearly love the creatures who also love the plants. We want to welcome them into our gardens. I look down my suburban street. I can see maybe 20 houses and I live in interior Northern California. Since you and I last spoke, we've had at least one big drought. We've had terrible fire seasons. We, um, you know, have no more water than we've ever had in a given year, certainly. Um, and yet, despite knowledge of drought, lack of water as a natural resource, several rounds of incentives to like financial incentives by the government to have us replace our lawns and put in less thirsty native plantings and specifically native plantings. Like when these incentives came out in California, it was, you couldn't just put in gravel. It it had to both be permeable and have living green things. They wanted a certain number of um, native plants in that mix. I still look down my street, and of those 20 houses, I think there are four that have removed their lawn. Tell us a little bit about nature's best hope. Start with, you know, that urgency that made you put it together and try to reach this new audience, this audience of these people on my suburban street or your brother and sister, perhaps, who have a less natural, immediate affinity for this kind of engagement, but who are still caring, bright people. Well, the people on your street are nature's best hope. That is what the book is about. You as an individual, the way you behave, whether you act or not, is going to determine the future of the natural world and in turn will determine our own future. So, you know, it sounds very dramatic, because it is, (laughs) 
we tend to to uh, you know uh, be repulsed by by um, these these doomsday types of predictions, but things are spiraling downhill pretty pretty quickly, and the Earth is finite. It has finite resources, and we have a uh, an economic model based on perpetual growth. Those two things are colliding dramatically right now. We cannot grow forever. So we have to find a way to coexist with the world that supports us. We know what that way is. We have to have functioning ecosystems around us. Those ecosystems are built from plants and, and animals. We know that the more species that are in an ecosystem, the better it functions. We also know that we need the production of what we call ecosystem services, we need that everywhere and we need it uh, in top form. We need, we need highly functioning ecosystems to be churning out those resources everywhere, which means we need to design landscapes that enhance local ecosystems rather than degrade them. Yeah. Uh, and, and right now we're doing exactly the opposite, or at least we have been doing exactly the opposite. So we've been talking a few minutes now and it all sounds pretty pessimistic, but um, there is optimism here because I do see change, uh, at least within the last 10 years. The interest level in, in what I'm talking about continues to skyrocket. People recognize uh, that, that there's an issue. And the important thing is they recognize they can do something about it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if that's the single message of nature's best hope, it's that this is an environmental issue that you as an individual can address and see the results which is, you know, that's that's different from climate change. If I said I want you to solve climate change and I'm going to check on you tomorrow, we wouldn't see a lot of progress. No. But you could put a plant in your yard before tomorrow and we could see progress and you can see things use that plant, you can you can rebuild that ecosystem right in our dead landscapes yeah. starting almost immediately. Almost immediately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the positive message of of this book is that that you're the people on your street can do it. It's not that hard. Yes. And I would I would agree with you that like while that doesn't seem like a lot of progress in the last 10 years to look down my street and only see these four, 10 years ago, I was the only garden who didn't have a front lawn. So we have seen small progress. And I have to hope that like compounded interest, we are reaching a point where enough more people hear, join, care, do that we we t- start to tip the other way. Before we get into um, the really great concept behind what you uh, would you are you are advocating and proposing in the book, I'd like to have you describe two things that sort of are keeping us in the in the the saddest part of the conversation. Um, I would love for you to describe for listeners the idea of the half-earth concept and the trophic cascades. I think these are concepts, you you focus a lot in the book on what our trained ecologists know, what our academics have found, are researching, are trying to get out to us. And while you don't need to understand these things to do what we are asking, I think they are really beneficial concepts to get in people's heads um, because it, I think does bring in the drama of what just one garden working in this effort helps to to overcome. Right. All right, let's start with, with half-earth. 
Um, the concept wasn't conceived by uh, E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, but he, he in 2016 wrote an entire book called Half Earth, where he, he talks about the science that describes why we need to preserve functioning ecosystems on at least half of the planet. Uh, and, and by functioning, I mean, those are the, the healthy ones that are that are supporting the biodiversity and turning out those ecosystem services. Uh, and much of the book talks about the science that describes um, species area curves and all these things that are saying, well, it's got to be this this much land. You know, right now we have parks and we have preserves and they're scattered all over the place. And we feel good about that. But uh, the bottom line is they are too small and too isolated from each other in order to accomplish the goals of what we want them to do. Right. People think that uh, we don't want anything to go extinct. So if there's a few of them left in a park someplace, that's okay because they're not extinct. They're missing the point that those species all do something. So what we need are the contributions from those species but we need them everywhere, not just in a little park and preserve. That's like a zoo. So you can go and see them. You know, I, I, I run into these posters all the time. We have to preserve nature for future generations to appreciate. That makes it sound like nature is, is simply there for entertainment. Uh, and it is. It's enormously, enormously entertaining. But nature is, is – um, we're not going to have future generations if we don't preserve nature. So it's, you know, it's, it's not optional. Um, and that was uh, Wilson's message, is that we, we really have to um, get serious about conservation on, on half of the earth. And then he ended the book. And of course, if you know some of the statistics about the human footprint on the planet, the first thing you do is, is scratch your head. We are farming half of the earth right now. Half of the earth is in some form of agriculture, on terrestrial uh, earth anyway, um, which means we're in the other half. So without touching agriculture, because it's going to be hard to do that without reducing the human population. So let's just say, okay, we're going to continue to, to have agriculture in half the earth. That means 7.8 billion people, all of the infrastructure in the U.S. that's more than 4 million miles of paved roads, the airports, the golf courses, all the things that we have. And air, airports are not trivial. The, the uh what is it? The Denver airport is twice the size of Manhattan. I mean, these are, these are big areas. Um, they're in the other half. So how are we going to have uh, viable conservation programs where we have all those people and all that infrastructure? I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Doug Tallamy likely needs no introduction to you. Entomologist, researcher, professor, and author, he is perhaps most importantly a caring human, ardently working to repair how we as individuals see and treat the natural world. We'll be right back with more on how and why Doug sees each of us as nature's best hope. Stay with us. Hey, thank you so much to all of you that reached out to me with more questions about connecting Cultivating Place to your local public or community radio station. I am so excited to partner with you in this way. If you didn't have a chance to connect with me and you have a public or community radio station in your area on which you would like to hear Cultivating Place, send me an email. Cultivating Place 
at gmail.com. I would be happy to partner with you to introduce your favorite podcast to your favorite radio station. I know I said this last week, but I really think it bears repeating. Public and community radio stations across the country are like community gardens in a way. They help connect regions. They help grow and support communities, economies, and cultures of care. Cultivating Place is a great value and a fantastic addition to their programming lineup. 45% of all public radio station listeners identify as gardeners. They care about the cultivation of their places. We have great statistics, great graphics, and out-of-this-world testimonials from you all and from other stations to share. So again, if you have a public or community radio station in your area on which you would like to hear Cultivating Place, send me an email cultivatingplace at gmail.com and we'll get started working together to introduce your favorite podcast to your favorite radio station because together we really do grow better. We're back now to our conversation with Doug Tallamy, entomological evangelist and author of Bringing Nature Home. He is speaking with us today about his newest book, Nature's Best Hope. When we left off, Doug had reminded us of some of the statistics around the damage human development and activity has already inflicted on the natural world and her systems. As we come back, Doug also reminds us that while it could seem like we have already failed this test, and in many ways we have, there is still hope. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's where nature's best hope comes in. Right. Because Rather than pursuing the old model of conservation, which was humans are here and nature someplace else. We're going to preserve it, but it's going to be someplace else. The The idea that humans and nature could not coexist is very old, uh, and it's throughout our, our culture. That has to end because the only option now is for humans and nature not only to coexist, but be happy together, to coexist in a healthy way. Uh, and that's going to take some big changes. It's going to take some big changes. I am uh, I'm, I'm visiting my my uh, grandchildren right now in Portland, Oregon. I'm looking out the window. I see um, I see southern magnolias. I see bamboo. I see kusa dogwood. There's not a single plant that I'm looking at that's that's native, but they all could be, or at least some proportion of them. So. We're not talking about impossible changes here. We're just talking about understanding the role of the species around us. Um, that means several things. It means you have to understand the biome where you where you are. Yeah. When I fly into Denver, I looked at it, it looks like Philadelphia because of all of the eastern trees that everybody in Denver has planted because most of the people in the west are from the east and they want it to look that way. Well, Denver is a, is a high plains, short grass prairie. It, it is not designed ecologically to support the, the forests of the east. There's not enough rain. So we have these are just a few basics we have to embrace. And, you know, if you live in, in a high, high plains, short grass prairie, that's the ecosystem that you have to support, not something from someplace else. Right. Okay, so quickly describe the idea of a trophic cascade. Um, trophic cascades 
They can either be top-down cascades or bottom-up cascades. Let's talk about bottom-up cascades. The bottom, the first trophic level, are plants. And of course, they're capturing the energy from the sun. They're creating uh, essentially all the food on the planet that then supports the rest of, of life. Yes. So what you do to the plant, to the first trophic level, the plant level, is going to impact everything um, above that. Um, so you have a number of trophic systems. The, the second trophic level are the herbivores, the things that eat plants. The third trophic level are the, the things that eat the herbivores, and then, then on and on. So if you disrupt that first trophic level, and that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, this. Not only do we take away plants and create um, huge lawns. I mean, we have an area of lawn the size of, of New England in the U.S., um, so we've essentially removed the plants there, or we replace the plants with with um, a plant from outside of your your local ecosystem, and it's not performing its uh, the roles of the native plants. That's playing with that first trophic level, and that starts this trophic cascade that then impacts everything above it. So um, it turns out that most of the energy from plants is passed to higher trophic levels to uh, animals through insects. And most of the insects that are passing the energy to animals are caterpillars. So, you know, we're, we're learning that we can, we can narrow this down to uh, make it much more simple. We need to create landscapes that make caterpillars. Yeah. Which is exactly the opposite of what we tried to do. We've always, oh, there's a pest. We've got to have a pest-free right. plant. We've got to spray them and kill them all. If you don't make that caterpillar, you don't have the bird that eats the caterpillar. Right. Rears its young on that that caterpillar. Well, I mean, we're really simplifying here, but um, that's that's what it boils down to. Well, and it's so embedded in our mindset as humans at this point, specifically, you know, in you know modern industrialized Western humans, that bugs are bad. You know, and and it was actually right in your very first description of being on your landscape and looking for insect damage on a leaf to see who was eating and you turn the leaf over to find the culprit like just like we love bugs you and i you're an entomologist i'm a gardener we love bugs but that's still our language of i shouldn't use that word <laughs> right but but it, it's a great demonstration of how hard it is to change a mindset that we have been trained for several generations to to think like and respond as though this were true uh, because we didn't understand the importance of those caterpillars in the larger food chain and these, as you say, trophic cascades. So the new approach is rethinking how we do things. And that is sort of the first section of your book. What is your proposition? What, what do you want us to do, Doug? I want you to create homegrown national park. <laughs> and what do you mean when you say a homegrown national park? That's a pretty big proposition. What does it mean? Um, let me let me talk about how I, I came up with this idea. Um, I was I was looking at the acreage that is in lawn. Um, you know, lawn is a deadscape, particularly the way we we treat it. We mow it and we over fertilize it and we put pesticides on it and we wreck our watersheds and but it looks pretty. Well, ish. Uh, this is a, an old old uh, piece of data. I think it was 2012, something like that. It was measured 40, 40 million acres, 40 million plus acres in, in lawn in the U.S. And we're adding about 500 square miles of lawn a year. So it's much more than that right now. But let's stick with the 40 million acres of lawn figure. 
I said, well, gee, if we cut that area in half and put plants back where those the lawn is now, put productive plants back, that is 20 million acres. And I remember it was it was early in the morning. I was sitting in, at my dining room table saying, well, how big is 20 million acres? Let me compare that to national parks. And I started adding up the, the area of our major national parks, you know, Yosemite and Yellowstone and um, the Adirondacks, the Smokies, all these places. And it turns out that that almost all of the major national parks added up together is still less than 20 million acres. And I said, well, gee whiz, we can create a new national park. Where are we going to do this? We're going to do it at home. So we'll call it Homegrown National Park. And, you know, it was kind of funny, but the idea grew on me. I talked about it for years before I actually wrote about it. There's a lot of pluses there. And one of them is it creates the connectivity that we need to tie together the actual preserves that we have out there, the, yeah. the real parks and preserves that right now are isolated from each other because we're in between those parks and preserves. And the way we're landscaping is, you know, they're, they're no man's land. They're the, the, the functional level of, of the suburban urban ecosystem is really low. So if we can raise that, so it not only allows plants and animals to move between parks and preserves where supposedly they're safe, it also allows them to live outside of those parks and preserves, which is which is the necessary thing. When you have a small preserve, the populations within that preserve are also small. All populations fluctuate. In good times, they go up, and in bad times, they go down. If they are a small or a tiny population, those fluctuations often end up um, meaning that the population disappears. It blinks out of its little habitat because it hits, it hits zero. Uh, it could be a single storm, could be a disease, who knows, who knows what. Right. But, a freeze, a heat, something. The, the smaller yeah. it is, the more exponentially vulnerable it becomes. Exactly. And then that it's gone. That's local extinction unless it recolonizes that park reserve. And we've made that very difficult. Um, imagine a box turtle crossing a, a major highway. It just doesn't happen. So that's local extinction, and that's happening all over the place. And that's why populations within these small preserves are disappearing at a regular pace. So uh, that model of conservation is one we've pursued for the last century. It's not working. We would not have an extinction crisis if it were working. So we need to create viable habitat outside of those parks. It's that simple. And that's what Homegrown National Park would bring us toward. Will it work? I can't guarantee that, but uh, it's certainly worth trying. And it's, it's certainly worth work trying. better than what we have. And it gets to, so it's interesting, you know, um, you know, I would ask listeners to visualize if they will, the United States as like that childhood map you had to memorize and mm -hmm. then try and locate, you know, in your brain where our biggest national parks are, you know, as you just mentioned them. And then you visualize all of those lawns in between. <laughs> and then you light them up with native plants and habitat. And all of a sudden you are dealing with what essentially you have realized is the bigger problem, which is not that we aren't conserving enough land, it's that it's fragmented. And we need to deal with habitat fragmentation even more urgently than we need to deal with 
these big national parks or or adding more of them and the way we connect them all so that there are these corridors which we've heard about from other people you know you you think about the Audubon Society or the Sierra Club or the National um, Parks Department you know they there are people talking about the how do you build biological corridors so that you know animals can migrate but it hasn't been put together in quite this comprehensive of an idea that involves us as active citizens and stewards in this big project that connects us all right we you know imagine go back to that picture of the US and your puzzle is a puzzle of conservation centers well you're a piece of that puzzle yeah you can be and if you, yeah you don't play the game. There's there's a missing piece in in the puzzle, and um, but if you do, then we put enough of the pieces together where we can actually see what the the picture is, the grand conservation scheme is. So I'm really liking this homegrown national park idea. Tell us more about it. I have lawn. I actually do have a little bit of of native lawn, native grass lawn in my back. It's very small, maybe ten percent of my overall property. Work from there. What 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 do I do if I have more than that? Let's say uh, two thirds of my yard is green turf grass, and and let's just point out too. I, I would like to point out that in the west, so west of the Mississippi or west of the Rockies, turf grass is a very very different thing than it would be in the east. In the east, where it you get regular rain throughout the year on non-drought years, you can have a sort of native meadowy lawn that is not the horror that non-native turf grass in the West is. Yeah, and it's all about water. Uh, you don't have enough, enough water to support the cool season European grasses that create our, our lawns. Well, but lawn is part of our culture, uh, has been based on um, the status symbol of Europe. Only the rich aristocracy could have nice lawns. Uh, and uh, so it is a symbol of, of compliance with the cultural norm. Uh, and of course, then, then marketing has taken over. If you listen to the commercials, um, you're, you are not a good citizen if you have a dandelion. Um, and if it's not a perfect lawn. Back in the 50s, real, this is a true story. If you did not have a perfect lawn, you were a communist. <laughs> And that was serious stuff back then. So people say, you tell me to get rid of my lawn. No, I'm not. I'm saying reduce the size of it. And let's just start with cutting it in half. The lawn you keep is still going to be manicured. It's not going to be your center of conservation. It is what we call a cue for care. It shows you are still part of the culture. You're not a rebel here. Um, you're, you're a good citizen in your neighborhood. But you're adding more plants that contribute to ecosystem function to your yard. And if you do that strategically, your neighbors won't even notice it. Uh, you're, you're simply gonna have, have more plants. So uh, the half you keep is, as I said, is gonna, be, is gonna be manicured and you won't be fighting any of your HOA rules. Um, we're not talking about a, abandoning landscape norms. We're talking about adding plants. Yeah, adding ecological function to those, yeah, 
And life. I mean, that sounds like such a like cold and weird thing. You're going to add ecological function. No, you're adding life and dynamic beauty and, and flowers and that sound that summer is supposed to be of, of crickets and songbirds and bats and, and, you know, on your side of the world, fireflies. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Doug Tallamy is an entomologist, researcher, professor, and author. His most recent book, Nature's Best Hope, summarizes his years of scientific research and the damaged systems of our natural world. He proposes the radical idea that we in our gardens are, in fact, nature's best hope for reconnection and repair. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, I don't know about you, but I could definitely use more hope and more boosts of green hope already this year, this month, this winter. We can control so very little, but we can control what we focus on, what we listen to, and how we grow forward. I am pleased to share with you that my first public speaking event of 2021 is coming up on January 26th, when I will be in the company of some wonderful green energy folks for Plantarama 2021, a full day virtual event with speakers and tradespeople, fun and future forward thinking. Normally held in person at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden every year for the past 24 years, for its 25th anniversary in these times of COVID-19, you can join in from anywhere for a wonderful interactive day of speakers on your desktop, your laptop, even your phone. A $30 entrance pass gains you access to the entire day and you don't have to be captive in front of your screen. We all have Zoom fatigue, I think. You can check into the speakers and presentations that appeal to you. You can visit with exhibitors as time permits, and everything is recorded, so you will have access to the information and presentations for two weeks after January 26th. Schedules and times are available at metrohort.org forward slash calendar forward slash plantorama. Speakers include... Adrian Benep of the Brooklyn Botanic. Hmm. Speakers include Adrian Benep of the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, landscape architect Signa Nielsen, and three extraordinary women growing our world and featured in my book, The Earth in Her Hands. Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm, Midori Shintani of the Tokachi Millennium Forest in Japan, and New York Times columnist and creator of A Way to Garden, Margaret Roach. As I think about this conversation with Doug Tallamy, of the many damaging and off-base so-called cultural norms that could use a reset, if not complete overhaul, these voices at Plantorama 2021 are just the directional, visionary voices we need in our ears and hearts right now. I hope to see you there January 26th. We're back now to our conversation with author and scientist Doug Tallamy. He's speaking with us today about his newest book, 
Nature's Best Hope, which lays out a fabulous proposal that if we in the U.S. reduced our maintained turf grass by just one half and replaced it with native plants that wildlife loves and needs for food, shelter, nesting, and larval care, we would have the single largest national park stretching across urban and suburban areas from coast to coast. It's true. Uh, you know, maintenance is, is a big part of it. Thomas Rayner talks about uh, building, um, using lawn as area rugs rather than wall-to-wall carpeting. But uh, when you build a house, it becomes the default. You put it all in lawn and then the builder leaves and it's up to the homeowner. And most of the time it just stays stays that way. And it is easy to sit on a, on a lawnmower. Um, so it's, it's easy to care for, but it takes a lot of inputs, a lot of energy, a lot of, of fertilizer and water and all the things that we can't afford anymore. There is um, there's an issue, particularly for younger families who are, as you said, very busy. They're doing all the all the kid things, and most of those families don't spend a lot of time gardening, and they don't they don't want to. It's not their goal yet. What we need is um, to build a new industry. I call it ecological landscaping, and it's starting to happen in different parts of the country. Oh, it is, yeah. There's a wonderful program in, in um, St. Louis where they're training ecological landscapers. But but rather than hire the mow, blow, and go guys, you're going to hire ecological landscapers who know which plants should be there. They know how to take care of They know how to get them established. Once they're established, you're right, it's less, it's less maintenance. Uh, but it's not maintenance-free. And you still – you don't have to become uh, an ecologist in order to do this. Early on, somebody told me, uh, you know, this is a great idea, but it takes way too much knowledge. Uh, and and I thought, well, to me, using your iPhone takes more knowledge than. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow we manage that. But but rather than than uh, I mean, it'd be great to raise the ecological IQ of the country, but you don't have to. We can just hire somebody. Unfortunately, in so many places, that person doesn't exist yet. So this is a it's a nascent industry, huge opportunity for for growth. Um, and, and we're not us. It's important to emphasize we're not talking about putting the nursery industry out of business. No. Early on, I, I gave a talk. I think it was at Penn State to nurserymen. And I remember this guy in the front row. He sat there with his arms crossed, you know, and I heard him mumbling. He said, you're trying to put us out of business. And I, I didn't think of a retort until I was driving home. But I said, well, wait a minute. There's 129 million homes in the U.S. If we re-landscape all of them, it's not going to put the nurserymen out of business. I'm just mm-hmm. asking you to change your inventory. Mm-hmm. And the, the only obstacle to that, I mean, the nurseryman just wants to sell plants. He's not married to Asian plants. He just doesn't believe anybody's going to buy them. Yeah. So it's the marketplace. And again, that's that's where it comes down to the individual homeowner. Well, and oddly, I think that this terrible, terrible pandemic has worked in our favor because gardening has really been highlighted as an essential uh, both space and activity, a form of um, at least symbolic self-sufficiency and um, much needed uh, mental and physical release for people stuck at home. And we have seen this fantastic return to the garden, to gardening um, at this time. And it seems like 
Now is a great time to be getting this message out to every single person we can. The 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 compliment so so we're we're getting now to the the first sort of request is cut your lawn by at least half. The second kind of part of this proposition is fill it with plants that make a difference. Walk us through that. Uh, okay, this is this is actually um, our most recent findings that have come out of our, our my lab at the University of Delaware is that all native plants are not created equal. So it, uh, it you know we talked about native versus non-native. You choose a native plant, everything will be great. But when you look at remember we said that that creating caterpillars is the key. Look at the number of caterpillar species that various native plants support. And it varies tremendously. It varies by orders of magnitude. Across the country, oaks support more caterpillars than anything else. So where I live, it's 557 species of caterpillars on oaks. Compared to tulip trees, it's another good native in the east, support 21. Yellowwood, another good native, support zero. I mean, so they're all native plants, but there's a huge variation. If I'm trying to rebuild a functional food web or a vibrant food web in my yard, and I load it with yellow woods, I have failed, even though they're native plants. So I call these, these top producing plants, and it's, it's not very many of them, it's only 5% of the local native plants. Everywhere around the country you go, the, the top 5% are produ producing about 75% of the food that drives the food webs. So we're calling them keystone plants. We have to rebuild our food web in a way that includes those keystone plants. I can I consider them, let's pretend you're building a house, you know, you start with the two yep. by fours and the supports. You don't start with the wallpaper or your house would not stand up. So you've got to have those keystone plants that are gonna be the backbone of your food web. And then you can diversify. Um, there are four things every landscape needs to do. Every landscape needs to support that viable food web. They're your keystone plants. Uh, they also have to manage the watershed. Everybody lives in a watershed. You have to manage it. It is plants uh, with lots of roots that, that do that. We need to support pollinators everywhere. Uh, so there's a little bit of conflict here because most of the keystone plants that are supporting the food of building those caterpillars um, are not the best pollinator plants. Right. Some of them are, are good. So then we have to think about the plants that are going to support pollinators the best. Uh, and the, the final thing is we want to sequester carbon. That's where more plants come in. Again, lawn is the worst at doing that. Um, so each one of those ecological goals in our yard um, have different plants that do them really well. It turns out that, that oaks support the food web the best. They also manage the watershed the best. They also sequester the most carbon. We didn't think they did anything for pollinators because they're wind pollinated, but there's recent research that shows that up to 80% of the pollen that at least certain andrenid bees are bringing back in the spring is oak pollen. They're going and getting the pollen even though it's wind pollinated. Right. So oaks are doing all four of those things. That's a real keystone plant. Yeah. And as you say, it is native. Um, there are natives across the country. Um, and what was interesting is as you were walking us through the different levels of your keystone plants and what they need to accomplish. You, in many ways, were talking about also good garden design. You have 
some vertical canopy. You have some, you know, shrubbery that provides fall color and structure at a lower level. And then you have the flowers that bloom throughout the year. The, the, the goals of a beautiful garden um, and a welcoming garden space for us as people are basically absolutely the same as what you just laid out if you have the right plant species working with you. Right. Three, three-dimensional three landscapes instead of two-dimensional. Yeah. And that have all-season interest. Now, exactly. so the, you know, I'll, I'll again point to my, my suburban street, which I think is fairly generically, you know, quote-unquote normal. Um, there's a mix of age families. There's a mix of socioeconomic backgrounds and, um, you know, workplace habits, Uh not all of these lawns can take an oak tree, but I see, as you pointed out where you are right now, you know, there, I can see 10 big trees and, uh, one of them is native and that is the seedling cotton oak, cottonwood I let go in my yard and I love with all my heart. Mm -hmm. I have two little oaks that I have planted in my front parking strip, uh, where there are currently two uh, non-native flowering, I don't know, pear, plum, whatever, something. But my little oaks are coming up and soon I will take those down because the oaks will be big enough to hold that spot. Not every garden can take an oak. Oaks are big guys. If you can't like, you know, plant an oak in your own garden or, uh, you know, what would your recommendation be? Like get together with your neighborhood and say, okay, we need two oaks. Let's put them here and here. That's an excellent suggestion. Your landscape is, um, we don't want it to be a tiny island. Right. And it probably is too small to accomplish all the goals I just listed. But your neighborhood is much more of a size you can, you can deal with. And you can divvy up those ecological roles. The, the pollinator plants are going to go where you've got the most sun. Um, uh, so yeah, this is this could be a social networking uh, um, opportunity to to um, have the neighborhood work together. Actually, get to know your neighbors again and and um, divvy up those ecological roles. That's the you know that's the dream. That would be that would be ideal. You've been at this work a very long time, and I I know the urgency and I know the the effort and the the brain and heart power that went into this next book. It is uh, deeply researched, um, especially in unpacking the Western European mindset about how we got to where we are now. Um, and I think that's so powerful um, to see it laid out. And I think that dismantling is is important um, if we're going to change our ways. Because I think one of the things you say is the single greatest thing we can do is X, Y, Z. And for me, it goes back just one bit further, which is the single greatest thing we can do is change our mindset. And that is, in essence, what you're asking us to do is our mindset will then change our behavior. Right. Right. There's a, there's a thousand ways to approach this problem, but mm. deciding you're going to is the big one. That's yeah. the one that we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, is there, you know, in light of everything we've just talked about, is there anything you would like to add about the 
maybe the urgency and, and maybe the joy? I guess we can we can end the way we started in emphasizing that this is an environmental issue that the single individual can address successfully and get positive feedback and then do it again. Uh, so um, that's the message of hope. You you get to see that the, we can restore the earth that we have we have wrecked, uh, and you can do it. And there are lots of resources to help us. So uh, definitely start with Doug Tallamy's two books, uh, Bringing Nature Home and Nature's Best Hope. And your Sierra Club, your Audubon Club, your uh, there are the Xerces Society, the um, Bee City USA. There are so many good organizations that will have lists for you of these plants. I believe you have lists on your website, right. Doug. But you know, you've got you've got the California Native Plant Society and a tool that they've created called Calscape. Uh, it's the best tool in the country. Yeah, and and they're across the country, like. Colorado Native Plant Society has one, the Missouri yep. Native Plant Society and the Missouri Botanical Garden, the, you know, Lady Bird uh, Johnson Wildflower Center. They have masses of resources for us. And that is part of what's giving me hope is the structure is in place to support every home gardener, home owner who is interested in taking part. Like we are, we are prepared. We can do this. Right. Thank you very much for being a guest today. You're welcome. You're an excellent interviewer. <laughs> well, I care passionately about this. Doug Tallamy is also a passionate believer and carer about these topics. He is a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he has taught for more than 32 years. He is a member of the Center for Humans and Nature, a group of dedicated people working to expand our natural and civic imaginations. Doug's well-loved books include Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Gardens, and most recently, Nature's Best Hope, which we have been speaking of today and wherein he proposes the magnificent idea of a homegrown national park sown on what is currently maintained turf grass in every one of our home gardens across the country. You can find out more about Homegrown National Park, including links to many other resources, in the podcast notes this week at cultivatingplace.com. Join us next week when we continue our Fresh Start series in conversation with Mary Lynn Mack, Chief Operating Officer at the South Coast Botanic Garden in L.A. County, California, and a powerful leading voice for the American Public Gardens Association in 2021. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast and its extensive outreach is listener-supported through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Make sure to head to the website this week for more inspiring information and many images relating to Nature's Best Hope and the Homegrown National Park. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, Please share it with friends, with neighbors, and other gardeners you think could use a boost of hope, too. Our on-air producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Our original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. 
Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.